This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Diosto. He's the author of An Indian Tantric Tradition and its Modern Global Revival, Contemporary Non-Dual Shaivism. The book is published under the name Douglas Osto, uh, a.k.a. D. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks a lot, Raj. Good to be here. So an Indian tantric tradition and its modern global revival, that's a pretty sexy title. Um, It's an interesting project. It's an interesting read, (laughs) pun intended, of course. Uh, One of my, almost every time I talk about tantra, either at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies or in private courses, I say, look, contrary to popular belief, tantra is not necessarily good sex or black magic. It's much more than that. Yes. Yeah, it is. Although you do get a bit of that in there. So. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, why don't you tell us maybe first, um, how did this project come about? Yes, uh, I'd be happy to. First, I, I do. <laughs> I, I'm always a bit embarrassed when <laughs> when I tell people the title of my book, but I guess the new, which was not, which was not my idea for the title of the book, but apparently the new approach these days is to use as many words and phrases as you can to be found in search engines. So hence the rather <laughs> kind of wordy title. Uh, I would have just preferred to call it something like non-dual Shaivism or something like that, or uh, contemporary non-dual Shaivism. But anyway, um, how did I get into this topic? Well, I'm, my background really is in Buddhist studies um, and kind of traditional philological Buddhist studies, and I've specialized um, in Indian Mahayana Buddhism. Um, And so uh, I did my PhD on a Mahayana Buddhist scripture called Gandavyuha Sutra, uh, and that was my first book. And then for my my next book project, I was really keen to do something kind of more contemporary um, and also, you know, something a bit outside the box. And so my, my second book, was actually on the relationship between Buddhism and um, psychedelic spirituality in America. And that project was lots of fun because I actually got to talk to real life people and kind of look at spirituality and alternative spirituality um, on the ground. And, um, And so what I wanted to do for my next book project, I wanted to do something similar. And one of the things that I also really enjoyed with the previous book was looking at how the sort of an ancient Indian tradition kind of 
marries up with or is reinterpreted in in a kind of contemporary setting. Um, so those were some of the kind of drivers um, behind this book. Um, I've had a long standing interest in kind of non-dual systems. So originally the plan for this book was that I was gonna do a kind of comparative study of uh, contemporary non-dual spirituality. So I was gonna look at maybe Advaita and um, some Dzogchen and some Taoism and, uh, and some non-dual Shaivism. But I quickly realized when I got into it that, that was, uh, that's about five or six books rather, <laughs> rather than one book. So I decided I wanted to really focus on just one in particular um, and non-dual Shaivism has been a kind of side interest of mine in addition to my study of Buddhism. Um, so, so I thought, yeah, I would do, I would do that. Um, on a personal note, um, being a kind of Buddhist studies person and an Indologist, um, even though I've been studying India for pretty much my entire adult life, I've never actually been to India. Um, the, te- the oldest manuscript for the text that I was working on, um, the Gundavyuho, is actually the Royal Asiatic Society in London, and I did my PhD at SOAS. So, um, so yeah, so another incentive was to actually get to, to go to India, which, which I did get to do. I was in Varanasi for um, about three weeks when I was doing field work for the book. So, so that's so the might... back, that's the backstory. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. There are a lot of exciting and interesting threads uh, and very um, current uh, topics that you raise in your discussion. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, uh, nuts and bolts of it, um, um, that was the perfect segue into your methodology. What do you study for the book and how do you do so? Yeah, well, I kind of, I kind of talk about very briefly this kind of dual, kind of a dual hermeneutic. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to look at it um, really from the point of view of um, uh, a critical kind of outsider and taking a kind of religious studies approach. I mean, even though I'm in philosophy now, my training is really in religious studies. So I wanted to look at the kind of history, the kind of origins of, of the tradition and its contemporary manifestation and look at it in relation to um, things like um, global consumer capitalism and new age spirituality and look at issues about, um, you know, appropriation and um, digitization of, of spirituality on the internet uh, and these kind of topics, which I do do. But the other thing I wanted to do is and I sort of did this in my last book was uh, I was something of an insider to the topic and a practitioner. And so I wanted to also, as much as I could uh, be a kind of participant observer and get a feel for what it would be like to practice kind of contemporary form of, uh, of non-dual Shaivism. So, so it's a kind of blended approach, um, primarily kind of critical kind of religious studies approach um, but then I do include a kind of um, an autobiographical chapter um, called Recovering Non-Dual Shaivism, where I actually when I went and studied with some contemporary teachers and, and um, met with others and some of their students and, uh, and did, the, um, you know, did some practice, too. So I wanted to try to balance out those, those kind of two, those, those two different aspects. So that was the, that was the plan, really. 
Well, there are a number of really interesting issues that you raised there. Maybe we'll do the last set first uh, and talk mm -hmm. about this tension or whether it's not, perhaps it's not a tension, maybe that's a figment of my imagination, but the tension between uh, scholarship and practice and Maybe talk a bit about your your chapter on scholar practitioners and and um, do you um, how do you conceive of the relationship between the two, uh, particularly with respect to sort of the trajectory and scholarship of the academy and 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 the legacy that we have in terms of practicing and 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 study often being uh, at, at different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, and I, I think that there's a kind of you know, classical Indology as a very kind of European endeavor, um, you know, it's really, it was really important and also religious studies too. There was a real push to kind of, to, to get away from a kind of faith um, position or a kind of theological position to distinguish religious studies, say from theology or the, you know, a classical Indologist from somebody who, who is a practitioner. Um, but I think in recent decades that that's kind of, um, broken down somewhat, and you see, I think you see it, you see it in Hinduism. I mean, I'll talk, I'll speak mostly about Hinduism and Buddhism because those are the areas I know. But it seems that um, that that kind of sharp divide has uh, is is not so widely followed anymore, at least in, among certain scholars. So, you know, there was a in kind of old school anthropology, there was this big fear that the anthropologists might go native, right? Where, where now it seems that it's it's quite acceptable for, uh, for someone to be a scholar and a practitioner, or at least in a kind of with a kind of postmodern turn, the recognition that that we can't actually stand in any position that gives us any kind of objective, um, uh, a view of of our, our topic. So, in some sense or other, we're always always positioned and that we should be able to admit our our position and if that is and if we do have a commitment to practice something that that doesn't necessarily like inhibit or you know prevent our our scholarship and I think it kind of cuts both ways too because I think a scholar of a tradition who's also a practitioner um, can sometimes um, balance the more kind of um, sectarian and biased position that really, kind of zealous um, insider um, practitioners, sometimes they sometimes have a kind of somewhat myopic and one-sided view <laughs> of a tradition. So I think that it is kind of fertile ground and it, but it's still contested. You know, I'm sure there's still, you know, scholars of Hinduism and scholars of Buddhism that kind of might want to look a little bit sideways at, um, you know, a scholar practitioner. But I, I mean, in the case of non-dual Shaivism, you have uh, people, uh, like Mark um, Tukowski and um, Bettina Bomber and um, Paul Mueller Ortega that um, you know that are they're very well respected in their fields as scholars. So, and I think they were really kind of critical in some ways of of the kind of generation of this new um, contemporary kind of revived um, Shaivism. So, yeah, does that? Yeah, sure. No, that's 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 <laughs> great. It's always my questions are sort of meant to be more generative than exhaustive, and it's always the scenic route that. Yeah, because I can uh, is, I can keep generating. <laughs> I know it's quite all right. It's quite all right. <laughs> I just wanted to touch on your perspective of that tension because it's one that's very much alive and scholarship and beyond for sure. Um, 
but there are a number of really interesting issues you raise in your description of your book and the project, um, um, uh, issues of appropriation, issues of consumerism. Um, what do you find out about that in the book? What do you talk about? Yeah, well, I can, uh, it was really interesting because, um, you know, I started this project. It was very much, you know, I was very much comfortable with this just uh, referring to, you know, the topic as Kashmir Shaivism. And a lot of publications refer to, you know, this tradition as Kashmir Shaivism or Kashmir Shaivism. And right before the book came out, I was at Tantric Studies conference in Flagstaff in 2019. And uh, I was very last paper to present. Um, half the people had left by then. Just kind of shows you there's still a very kind of textual, historical slant towards tantric studies. But one scholar in the room who is also Kashmiri pointed out that, well, we still have Kashmiri pundits that are practicing this tradition. You don't really speak, you know, you don't really speak, you know, speak to them. And it really made me reflect on my use of language um, and also how, um, you know, what I'm actually doing in this project and, and what am I not doing? And I realized that really calling it Kashmir Shaivism, I ended up not really being that comfortable with it in the sense that uh, I could see that it could lend itself to uh, this idea of appropriation, um, that you're just, because there is a culture that is under threat um, and, you know, for someone who coming from the outside, who just studies the text and then, and then kind of adopts that name. So that, I'd, so it was kind of very last minute with a, the book was practically impressed that I changed it to non-dual Shaivism. Um, and I reserved the term Kashmir Shaivism or Kashmiri Shaivism for the, uh, the pundit community that, that practices this tradition. Um, so I think, I think it's important um, to, to recognize um, and be culturally sensitive. Um, but at the same time, also what I wanted to do with this project and and this is what I did in my last project too, is I was really looking at like convert American Buddhists and how they interpret uh, Buddhism. And so I was very much interested in the kind of non-Kashmiri, particularly Anglo-English speaking people that have adopted non-dual non Shaivism and kind of an English as a medium and the internet as a medium um, sort of becomes this platform for a graft between this thousand year old Indian sort of religious philosophy and and sort of new age spirituality. So I wanted to be very specific about what I was looking at. Um, but I also want to recognize too that I, I do see it as a legitimate form of spirituality. Like I, I don't see that that just because it's contemporary and it's new age and they're, you know, um, people from different language backgrounds and ethnicities and religious backgrounds doesn't doesn't mean to say that it's not legitimate to practice this kind, kind of spirituality. So, but there really has been, you know, you, you, we really much have a Hindu, um, you know, a thousand year old philosophy that was primarily elitist and practiced by Brahmins then kind of enter in, enters into the new age. And so I do talk about, there's this kind of um, de-Hinduization and sort of whitening of the tradition that has to take place to kind of uh, to kind of cut it loose from its kind of or origins in order to make you know kind of package it in the new in the new age in the in the um, 
and global capitalist spiritual marketplace. Um, yeah, so I, I try to be as sensitive and kind of balanced to these different issues without really without really weighing in and saying kind of this is right or this is wrong. But this is kind of this is kind of like how I, you know kind of how I see it. So let's perhaps talk about uh, when you say an Indian tantric tradition. Um, what does that mean? And, and, and it might be a naive question that, you know, I, on this podcast, I either play, <laughs> yeah. I either play dumb or at times I'm not yeah. playing, obviously. But, uh, um, you know, what, what is Tantra? And then maybe in so explaining, we can clear up some gross misperceptions that many audiences may have about what an Indian Tantra tradition might be. Yeah, wow. I mean, Tantra, I mean, I do in some of my Indian... Uh, philosophy classes I talk about Tantra and um, and it's you know Tantra is this many-headed beast you know and it doesn't it's not exclusive to any particular tradition but it seems you know you know sometime beginning in maybe the first few centuries of the common era and then really coming on by you know um, by say the uh, 1000 or but you know somewhere between that period of say maybe two three hundred through to a thousand common era, like Tantra just kind of happens in India. And it's a sort of new religious outlook, um, which, and you end up with different varieties. So you have Shaiva Tantra, you have Vaishnava Tantra, you have Jain Tantra, you have Buddhist Tantra, but it generally focuses around a kind of new revelation of, of texts uh, and is really about a kind of, is they're really about technologies of transformation, the way that I see them, in the sense that, you know, Tantra likes to use, um, you know, mudras, mandalas, mantras, you know, sacred sounds, sacred diagrams. Um, uh, it tends to have an esoteric quality to it in the sense that communities get together focused around a, a guru. Um, and there's a, there's a secret transmission so that, that, that spiritual essence or power is passed down. Um, it seems that probably in its earliest days, um, it was quite transgressive in the sense it was probably practiced um, by non-Brahmins um, who, who really flaunted um, a lot of these purity laws about um, you know, sex and different types of food and intoxicants and death, you know, to the extent that, you know, having um, having sexual intercourse in um, charnel grounds uh, to generate sexual fluids and ingesting intoxicants to make offerings to ferocious deities. So that's a kind of left-handed, it becomes left-handed tantra, um, these kind of extreme practices that were basically used probably, um, here I'm, I'm really drawing on uh, David Gordon White's scholarship, but drawn on, um, on these, the, the power of these transgressive practices to propitiate uh, ferocious deities in order to acquire magical powers, and then ultimately to attain liberation, moksha, which is a kind of general orientation of most Indian religious philosophies, whether it's Buddhist or Jain or Hindu. Um, and then what happens over time is that it becomes, you know, some of that, those tantric practices become sanitized and replaced with less polluting um, uh, substances, um, get incorporated into larger um, Brahmanical, sort of bigger tradition, um, Buddhist, 
adopted there's still a huge debate actually it was like where does where did tantra originate from was it the buddhists and then the shaivas or the was it the shaivas and then the buddhists and and you know the jury's still out on that but there's obviously especially for more transgressive tantra there's obviously mutual influence going on there um so you can't really understand one without like can't really understand shaiva tantra outside of sort of tantric you know buddhism and, and vice versa um and so what happens by the medieval period which is where i'm really talking about when i talk about non-dual shaivism is you have these uh brahmin exegetes um who look at the tantric texts these new scriptures and they develop a very sophisticated uh philosophical and soteriological system a path to attain uh liberation that really draws on you know at least like 1,500 years of, of Indian religion and philosophy and ritual um, and texts. And so, um, you know, there's several giants, but probably the biggest is um, Abhinavagupta. And, uh, and, that's, and that's kind of the genesis of, of, the, of non-dual Shaivism within that larger umbrella of like, you know, Tantra. And and those transgressive practices and the sexual practices, and that and they've been interpreted in different ways, uh, with different kinds of rituals, have always been a part. But they're only they're only like a part. Like you kind of as when we we started talking about in the beginning, there's this kind of new age idea that you know tantra is you know sacred sex, um, and um, Hugh Urban has has written quite a bit about that. So I, I don't want to just recapitulate, but. Uh, he's probably one of the leading figures in that. And again, but I mean, people like Urban, and I tend to agree with his view too, unlike the, some other scholars that are a little bit more critical. But I mean, Urban's view is that, you know, New Age Tantra is just another kind of Tantra. It's not any less legitimate than kind of ancient Indian um, Tantra, but it, it does have certain you know characteristic features and qualities to it. And it has been kind of reinterpreted or misinterpreted as it, you know, as it was transplanted from, from India um, to the West and kind of elsewhere. And, um, but I mean, some of his work, you know, that Urban's done on say Osho, for example, um, is quite fascinating in that regard. Uh, and as far as, you know, from the point of view of a religious study scholar, looking at, um, is getting down from that kind of ivory tower and saying that, you know, the real, real religion, real Hinduism or real Tantra is located in, in, you know, very ancient texts that I have to philologically dissect and ignoring like what's kind of happening on the ground now as a, as an illegitimate or not worthwhile, um, you know, topic of, of study. So I think, I think in a, in a very small part, one of the aims of my book is to open up that conversation a bit more between not only among scholars but also among practitioners and take the kind of this contemporary version of this tradition uh, seriously as as a tradition without trying to say that there is no difference between you know a thousand thousand years ago in Kashmir and now but but there are threads that that um, connect so well, it's, how's it's, that for a long? How's that for a long one? Well, that, was, that was my comp, compilation of tantra and what and about 
five, seven minutes. <laughs> As I say, it's always about the scenic route and it's always, it's always um, interesting. Uh, when I teach intro Hinduism, my two meta favorite metaphors, the first one's probably a jungle, you know, talking about an ecosystem. Um, and my second metaphor is a, a tapestry in different strands that come together. And right now, you can't really separate it out the strands. And one of uh, the tapestry consists of five strands, at least the way I, I, I teach it in an oversimplified manner at first, at least. And the tantric strand is always the most uh, interesting to navigate because it has these associations. But I really like what you say about it having to do with um, transformation, really more than transcendence, you know, the cultivation of Shakti, the the divinization or the shaktification of, of sound and space and and the body and, and speech, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. Uh, really fascinating stuff. The, 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 this isn't the topic of the book, but the book raises these uh, really interesting and important questions uh, to my mind about um, uh, to what extent can the banyan be transplanted, right? To what extent is, where does appropriation and an adaptation begin or vice versa? You know, these are, these are really important pressing questions that I think are fascinating. You know, I've had the same jackknife for 40 years. I changed the blade a couple of times. I changed the handle a couple of times. Is it the same? <laughs> is it the, the same, same one? Well, that's also something question. But, uh, um, but um, you talk about some, interesting figures in your book. Uh, maybe let's take a look at um, uh, chapter three, look at uh, Swami Lakshmanju and his legacy, it's called, I believe. Ah, uh, yeah. What do yeah, you, what yeah. do you share about him? Yeah, I, I, like when I first started reading about um, non-dual Shaivism, um, and that's when I came across some of the, um, some of the books that were on Lakshmanju uh, and then, and then finding out that there are a number of, of scholars um, that studied um, studied with him, and he seems um, I was I have to say I was I was very impressed with him as far as a kind of teacher of this tradition. I think I was probably more in, impressed with him by really anyone else. Um, so everything that I've sort of read about about him and. Um, uh, as a person and as and as a scholar, uh, it just seemed to be a really e exemplary uh, individual that really kind of embodied these kind of relig religious ideals. Um, yeah, so I was, um, yeah, I really enjoyed um, kind of investigating, uh, you know, his life and, um, and his teachings. And he was very, um, I, I think kind of, you know, Muktananda was 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 the real kind of super guru. Is like you know, like um, Osho or the Maharishi or something like that. And so, Lakshmanju never had that kind of super guru status, but in his own sort of quiet way, and never really having gone outside of of Kashmir, I think he traveled a little bit when he was younger. He had a really huge influence on some on some major um, um, scholars. And then, and then he had a very um, devoted um, group of, of of followers too. So, um, so yeah, I don't know if I don't I don't really want to just recapitulate kind of what I necessarily sure, sure, sure. I don't want to give any sure. any spoilers, but but I have to say that I was impressed. I mean, there were a number of other people that I weren't so <laughs> impressed. I guess the counter 
the counter, the unspoken part was there this other individuals I wasn't so impressed with, but I, he, he was definitely a person I was impressed with. And I can see why uh, people would be moved by, um, and, and also the people that I've met who, who actually did study with him, uh, you know, spoke of him with, with, uh, with great um, respect and, and reverence, so. And you you mentioned in passing um, the, the 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 subject of your following chapter, uh, much more popular figure, but maybe not uh, certainly not sort of pan Indic, but um, Swami Muktananda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you can talk a little bit about the extent to which uh, there still is a living lineage. Like this is very much part of of spirituality and practice to this day. This isn't just a figure who came in the last century and went. Um, for those who are listening, um, sort of who was Muktananda or what did he set up? Yeah, Muktananda was, a, you know, he's a, he was an Indian uh, a guru, a, a teacher who, who was, you know, called to the religious life, the, um, an, an ascetic lifestyle, um, very, at a very young age. Um, he studied, um, uh, he he studied with a number of people, but he fa- he really found his guru in Nityananda, who is another really interesting figure with a kind of shadowy background, but but considered by many people to be um, to be kind of a self liberated um, siddha master, enlightened master, and so um, Muktananda saw himself as a kind of spiritual heir of Nityananda. And then, and and somewhat later in his life, um, kind of discovered the teachings of of, of um, non-dual Shaivism, um, and sort of s- saw reflected in them um, a, a good account of kind of his enlightenment experience, um, and so sort of adopted that as a and, and started this international organi- organization, the Siddha Yoga. And it was really popular in the late 70s, early 80s. He went on a number of world tours um, and he had a, a big impact in North America and Europe, Australia, New Zealand. And um, yeah, and, uh, and he was also encouraged and supported a lot of the early English um, translations of some of the foundational texts for, for non-dual Shaivism. Um, and that was a lot of, for non, um, you know, English speak. You know, for English speakers, people who didn't read Sanskrit, <laughs> that was the first kind of exposure to a lot of these ideas. Um, unfortunately, there was a there's uh, toward the end of his life. There's a lot of things came out. Um, sex scandals with him having um, sex with his under underaged um, female disciples, and so that's kind of been a a mark on the tradition that's then sort of carried on, uh, you know, carried on since then. And, uh, and his, uh, his successor, well, there's, 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 that's a whole other discussion, but his current successor, Guru, um, uh, Guru Mai, is, um, is also a controversial figure for other reasons. Um, and it's kind of taken over that, um, the Siddha Yoga. And so it's not, but then from Siddha, Siddha Yoga was kind of planted the seed that then that then fractioned off into a number of other organizations. So, it really the, I talk about in my book. There's really a kind of there's a kind of Lakshmanju branch, and then there's a kind of a Mukta Ananda branch, and there's some kind of independent 
but largely, I, I would say 80 to 90% of, you know, contemporary practice around non-dual Shaivism outside of, um, outside of Kashmiri people comes from these two, these two kind of lineage branches. Um, yeah, so, so I, I think I it's really impossible to get any idea of what the contemporary tradition without looking at, at Mukta Ananda is apparently incredibly charismatic, uh, but also really controversial. And it really caused a kind of, you know, um, a kind of rift in the tradition, um, but, uh, and there's still, and, you know, and it's, he's still controversial even, you know, even to this day, so. Well, it's, it's fascinating. The reason I, uh, I wanted to touch on these two figures is, is uh, I'm, uh, I'm happy that you fleshed it out such that people understand that these figures, uh, there are these two great vamsas in terms of practice in the West and followings in the West. Um, and of course you, you gave, um, you gave some 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 snippets of your book and and entice people to read further if you're interested. I always yeah. found it so fascinating that um, that um, if I'm not mistaken, Muktananda's heir is female, um, uh, Guru Mai. I yeah. found that fascinating, and I wondered if that was unique to their tradition or or there's some um, uh, story behind that. And from what I understand. Um, uh, years ago, I knew a number of, of, of uh, practitioners on that path. And what I understand, she's sort of underground these days. You know, there's, not, there's, there's no easy way to have darshan type thing or to participate publicly in the path. I find, I find, it, I find it quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, because um, Guru Mai, uh, her and her brother, I think Subhash, I, I can't remember what his... his spiritual name was, but Muktananda, he actually picked, well, this is another point of controversy. Apparently he picked both of them. First it was Guru Mai, and then he also said that her brother, and then, then he stepped down and then later claimed that he was, he was um, harassed and, and physically abused and threatened to step down and then branched off and started his, his own thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I think, you know, Guru Mai was, uh, was had a very different style from Muktananda in the sense that she, I don't, she, she wasn't as sort of charismatic and kind of spontaneous, but she was a good kind of, you know, they talk about the kind of post-charismatic phase of, of new religious movements. And she, she was actually for many years, a very, seemed to be a very capable, you know, post-charismatic leader of the tradition and, and took a lot of moves um, to sort of downplay, you know, the more ecstatic elements um, within the tradition and emphasize more the kind of family oriented elements and, uh, and the kind of more routinized, you know, in the Weberian sense, a more routinized charisma. Um, but then I'm trying to, I don't remember the exact dates. I think it might be uh, either late nineties or early two thousands or something. Uh, she just began to withdraw, withdraw from the public, withdraw from her own followers and her own community. And now is, yeah, is really just extremely isolated. And, and yeah, and even, even people inside the tradition um, don't really have access to her. So it's become, it's become quite a, 
quite a sh- kind of a shadowy, <laughs> a shadowy figure still around in, in some sense. I think she makes a, a pre-recorded like, annual uh, uh, like announcement or dar- does like a does like a darshan or gives like a theme for that year or something like that. And as far as I know, like that's that's it outside of her, like outside of her inner circle. Um, yeah. And there wasn't, you know, there was a whole kind of scholars branch of the tradition that she sort of that that Paul Mueller Ortega and Douglas Brooks were a part of that that was disbanded and um, and that led those two um, scholar practitioners really to kind of go into their own thing and um, yes that, that's a kind of fascinating and still still mysterious kind of <laughs> element to that that tradition which I, I touch on briefly but I mean again it's kind of it's 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 a real unknown, and they were they were very reticent. You know, they they said that they don't do you know because I contacted them, you know, by email to see if I could you know do from some interviews, or and they were told that they have they do not communicate at all with the press. Um, so they were no, so that was a total shutdown as far as getting yeah. any any other kind of information. So I was just basically left to what you know publicly available knowledge through, you know, news and from their own website, stuff like that. So, yeah, but it is interesting. And I think she was, sorry, I just wanted to add, because you did ask this part of it, that I think she was an important influence for female practitioners as a female guru. And that was very kind of a non-standard. And again, kind of typical of Mukta Nanda's um, uh, style of not, you know, very non-conformist kind of style and a very charismatic style. And, and I think in some ways, like a kind of a very prudent kind of de- decision to make. And I know that I'll, I know and I've heard that there are other, ins, you know, insider, um, you know, female practitioners that were inspired by her and scholars have written about her as a female guru. Uh, but I mean, she, her whole kind of guruship has also been somewhat tainted by scandal and accusations of abuse and misconduct and things like that. Um, you know, which I do talk about in my book, only what's kind of, again, what's kind of out there in the public record. There have been a number of articles that were written about them uh, and about about this kind of controversy and succession and things like that. Um, but again, they weren't, uh, she wasn't available or anybody within that hierarchy was available for comment. So, so I had to be, I wanted to sort of I felt this, I guess this leads into another issue, which I would want to talk on. I was waiting for you to ask me, but I think I'll just talk about it anyway. The hard part about studying all of this is that there's a, there's quite a few substantial like sex scandals and financial scandals, a lot, primarily like sexual abuse scandals revolving around contemporary gurus in the tradition. And some of them were actually unfolding in real time, like as I was as I was writing, as I was writing the book. So I, I do kind of have a whole chapter kind of devoted to that and looking at, you know, you know, possible reasons for this. Is this something that is kind of an aspect of the tradition? Is it, you know, you can find the reasons for this within the theology or the theosophy of the tradition, or is this just about the abuse of power, which we see everywhere, you know, in the Me Too movement and things like that. But it does seem to be um, a thing. And, and also, I do weigh in on it in the sense that I think as a scholar and as a person, if I see that there's some kind of abuse going on, um, I, I feel it's important to, to actually um, 
to actually talk about it and let people know. Because one of the really interesting and scary things about the internet and this kind of digital medium that we're dealing with is a scandal hits. And then 24 hours later, entire website, entire website and organization is rebranded, rewritten, and there's this kind of invisibility um, around these kind of sex scandals where it seems that they that there there is the real potential that people were being abused and that someone may perhaps be a you know actually a predator and so i think it's important to um to to record this kind of information and hold people who are harming other people um to account for you know for the things that they've done and it was not a pleasant thing to write about at all it was is rather distasteful thing but I felt it, I needed to do it because um, because I did actually part of the reason why I wrote this book wasn't just for other scholars, but it was also for you know people that wanted to practice, or practitioners and people who wanted to find out more and the kind of uh, uh, kind of more synoptic, historically kind of nuanced sort of way. So I thought I felt a moral responsibility um, to talk about that that issue. It's an important issue to talk about without question, and I certainly can't imagine uh, it's an easy topic uh, to broach. Uh, you've organically, um, um, you've organically covered what would have been my following questions, which was, you know, the, the chapter structure and what's in the rest of the book, and also you touched on this just now. Who's the book for? And it's interesting that it's obviously for 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 academics, people interested in in, in tantra and Hindu studies, but also for practitioners. Um, could yeah, you say absolutely. a bit, a bit more about a bit more about uh, the the intended audience, and perhaps even fold in some of the the key sort of conclusions or takeaways, and whatever else you wanted to share about the book? Yeah, yeah, sure. And I mean, I think this this again was a follow follow up on my last book on uh, that I wrote, um, my altered states book on Buddhism and psychedelic spirituality, because I really wanted to write. I really wanted to write a book that um, was scholarly, but also written in a way that would be accessible um, to the interested lay person, especially the um, you know practitioners, right? So it's not it's not a book for practitioners, like it's not a how-to book, like this is how you practice non-dual Shaivism, but it's a kind of informational. I wanted it to be an accessible informational book for practitioners so they could read it, understand where this tradition comes from, you know, its history, its main practices, um, the origins of its contemporary lineages, um, and and kind of give that kind of non-sectarian sort of synoptic um, view. So that that was an important element. and, And also part of, in part, just because I think that, I think that being a, you know, uh, a scholar practitioner um, is a viable sort of occupation, if you will. I don't know position to locate oneself in, and that there's and that um, that one scholarship can be used in the service of others who are also also practitioners. And so to sort of step out of that ivory tower a little bit and and share some of this knowledge in a way that's accessible you know, to non-specialists. I mean, I also wrote it for other scholars of, you know, scholars of religious studies, scholars of Hinduism, people who are interested in new age, people who are interested in, um, 
this kind of, um, you know, these sex scandals and sexual abuse that happens in kind of guru disciple relationships. So they were all people and groups, cohorts, you know, that I, I had in mind, you know, I had in mind, um, you know, for the book. So I guess that answers that question. What are the conclusions? Uh, I don't, <laughs> maybe read, read the book and, and, draw, <laughs> and draw, I guess if I had to summarize like very briefly my conclusions, which I would, I would say that this new tradition is not the same as the old tradition and nor is like, and, and this is what we see in religious studies, you know, because Indian Buddhism is not the same as Chinese Buddhism is not the same as American Buddhism, but yet um, it can still call it non-dual Shaivism because I think there is a certain continuity and a, gen a general structure of belief and practice that has continued from, you know, a thousand years ago um, until now. and. And so, and even though it has morphed and it has changed and there are new problems and issues with global consumer capitalism and, and new age consumerism and things like that, that, that doesn't necessarily uh, make this tradition illegitimate. And that from my own experience, and I, and I guess in some ways I really resonated more with the other scholar practitioners and partly because maybe because I am a scholar practitioner, so we had a better rapport, but I also found, uh, you know, people uh, like Mark and Patina, for example, that I went and studied with in, in Varanasi, that uh, there's a real, a real sincerity there and a real devotion to the tradition. Um, uh, and, and then also they seem, as far as I could tell from their, you know, from reading about them and talking to people that know them, um, uh, and the short time I spent with them, that they're they're people uh, who have a lot of integrity, you know, moral integrity, uh, ethical integrity, and um, are sincere uh, practitioners. And I guess the flip side of that is there there's also a lot of people out there uh, who are not, who are actually predators, <laughs> and um, and who are kind of using certain ideas about you know the authority of the guru. Um, this idea of tantric spirituality involving sex um, as a way to kind of to prey on and, and abuse other people. And so I, I think in that chapter I talk about uh, that I, I mentioned before, I really, you know, I talk about caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware. If you want to practice this tradition, uh, I do think it, it, you, it is a real, it's, it's an authentic, you can find the authentic practice of this tradition, but be careful who you choose to study with. Yeah, I guess that, that would be the takeaway. And, um, and I hope that, yeah, and I hope that it does appeal to those audiences that I mentioned. I mean, I think that it was interesting writing the book because I mean, I was trained in classical philology, Indology and Sanskrit and stuff. So I think that there is, there is still very much in in uh, tantric studies and Shaiva studies and stuff um, in the Western Academy, you know, at the elite, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard level, a very um, kind of philological kind of orientation. And, and I think because I do have that background that hopefully that will help them get used to the idea that you can write books about contemporary, <laughs> contemporary, uh, you know, practice, you know, practice and new age spirituality and stuff like that. 
um, you know, without, you know, maybe they'll, they'll just think that it's kind of, you know, Tantra light or something and not, not worthy of their attention. But um, it was my hope that, you know, having those kind of credentials would actually help, you know, create that bridge, not just one way, but get the other way too, and kind of open up the conversation a bit more. Yeah. That was fascinating, fascinating and far reaching publication. Um, thank you for appearing on the podcast. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And I, I tried to do it and it's under 200 pages too, which I know is really, <laughs> is really important for some people these days, you know, social media era, <laughs> give it to me in small, <laughs> small doses. So indeed, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Raj. It was a, it was a pleasure. You're, you're welcome. For those of you listening, we have been speaking with uh, Dr. Diosto on his uh, brand new um, um, Rutledge publication. It's actually part of the Rutledge series in Tantric Traditions. And the publication is called, of course, uh, An Indian Tantric Tradition and its Modern Global Revival, Contemporary Non-Dual Shaivism. Until next time, stay safe and stay sane. Keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating what is Tantra. Take care.